Hi, it's Dan. Yes, after over a year away, there is a new ongoing season of the industry. Episodes will be out every other week. But since this is an off week, I wanted to share something else with you. It's two episodes of one of my favorite podcasts, History Daily, back to back. Now, in case you're not familiar, History Daily is a series that tells fascinating stories of what happened on this day in history. Now, what I love about this series is that it is indeed daily, but the episodes don't take all day to listen to. Each episode is under 20 minutes long, so it doesn't really feel like you're getting some stuffy history lesson. And there's a broad mix of different types of history. You get a little bit of science, technology, religion, medicine, sports, politics. It's basically everything thrown in. Now, on the industry, I like to say that we are exploring overlooked film history. On History Daily, they say they find the overlooked and often forgotten human stories behind the names and dates of history. Okay, so maybe I should borrow one of their writers. Here, I'm presenting two episodes about the world of aviation. First up, it's going to be the first flight of the Wright Brothers. December 17th, 1903, Orville and Wilbur Wright achieved the first powered and sustained controlled airplane flight in history. And then we move on to The Spruce Goose Takes Flight. I absolutely love this story. November 2nd, 1947, American aviator and sometime filmmaker and ruiner of RKO Studios, Howard Hughes, risks his life and reputation by taking to the skies in the largest aircraft ever built, the Spruce Goose. Sounds good, right? Okay, so here we go. From Noiser and Airship, here are two episodes of History Daily. It's December 14th, 1903. On a windswept beach a few miles outside the town of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, a man with a thick black mustache and keen, inquisitive eyes pokes his head out of his tent and looks around, frowning. A moment later, a second head emerges, similar in appearance to the first, but balding and clean-shaven. The two men squint up at the sky, checking for rain clouds. Then they glance across at a winged, wooden contraption sitting outside their tent. Today, we would recognize the contraption as a rudimentary airplane. But on this day, December 14, 1903, the word airplane does not yet exist. Instead, the two men simply call their invention the Wright Flyer. But whether or not it will fly remains to be seen. If it does, it will be the first piloted, engine-powered airplane flight in history. And its inventors, Orville and Wilbur Wright, two bicycle mechanics from Ohio, will become the unlikeliest of celebrities. With the help of three local Coast Guardsmen, the Wright brothers carry their machine to the foot of a nearby sand dune known as Kill Devil Hill. They flip a coin to decide who will make the first attempt. Wilbur, the bald one, wins the toss. He climbs into the cockpit and signals to his brother, he's ready. Orville pulls the propellers and the motors sputter to life. The machine rattles down the launching rail, picking up speed until, with a final lurch, it rises up into the air. But then immediately, it stalls. The engine cuts out, and the Wright Flyer crashes down to Earth. The Wright brothers' first attempt at powered flight has failed. Now they must repair their broken machine. The two brothers figure repairs will take about three days, meaning that the earliest their second attempt can be made 
is December 17, 1903, and there's still no knowing who will by then win the race to the skies and who will be forgotten. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is December 17th, the first flight of the Wright brothers. It's May 6th, 1896, seven years before the crash of the Wright Flyer. On a spring afternoon in the village of Quantico, Virginia, a houseboat floats on the serene waters of the Potomac River. Sitting on deck is a stern-looking elderly man in a dark three-piece suit, His name is Dr. Samuel Pierre Point Langley. He is the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution and the man who many believe will someday invent piloted engine-powered flight. For the last 10 years, this has been Langley's sole obsession. The former Harvard astrophysicist rose to prominence during the 1870s and 80s, establishing the unit for measuring the sun's radiation that still bears his name, the Langley. But by the mid-1880s, Langley felt intellectually unsatisfied and hungry for a new challenge. He turned his attention to a lifelong interest in a subject that had yet to be deemed respectable by the wider scientific community, aviation. During the late 19th century, the idea of human flight caught the imaginations of inventors around the world, but it would take a while for the new field of aeronautics to be accepted as something worthy of serious academic study. Early aviators were written off as cranks and crackpots. Because of this, Langley knew he had to proceed with caution, and carry out his experiments privately. His reputation was at stake. But there were others like him, legitimate scientists and engineers who based their aeronautical experimentation on meticulous calculations, drawing on the research of early pioneers like Leonardo da Vinci and Galileo. This burgeoning aviation community included Langley and Augustus Herring in the United States, Lawrence Hargrave in Australia, Louis-Pierre Mouillard in France, and Otto Lilienthal in Germany. The focal point of the community was a French-American engineer named Octave Chanute, who encouraged open communication between inventors. But out of all of them, Langley made the greatest strides toward the holy grail of aeronautics, piloted, engine-powered flight. And yet, for all his progress, Langley was still conducting his experiments in secret, fearing that if found out, his peers would ostracize him from the scientific community. Then in 1887, something happened that guaranteed Langley's place within the academic establishment. He was offered the role of secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, the most prestigious scientific position in the country. With this as his title, Langley was free to carry out his experiments at will. He assembled a team devoted solely to the invention of powered flight. Langley's workers found him domineering and obstinate, often dismissive of other people's ideas. But by May 1896, Langley had constructed a non-piloted flying machine, a four-winged wooden construction powered by a steam engine. He called it Aerodrome No. 5, and today is its first test flight. Langley fidgets nervously as his assistants positioned the launching rail aboard a houseboat on the Potomac River. The last four prototypes of the aerodrome all crashed just seconds after takeoff. If No. 5 is a failure too, Langley's aviation career might as well be finished. Langley grips the railings of the boat as the aerodrome engines fire up. 
Observing the launch alongside him is the inventor of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell. Langley hopes to achieve the same level of renown as his esteemed friend. And to his elation, the Aerodrome No. 5 is a success, staying aloft for 1 minute and 20 seconds before gracefully landing on the riverbank. It's a moment of victory for Langley. He receives a combined $70,000 grant from the War Department and the Smithsonian to develop a piloted version of the Aerodrome. So Langley spends the next six years working on this machine. Each year that passes, he feels like he's getting closer to securing his place in the history books. And by October 7, 1903, the piloted Aerodrome is ready for its first test flight. But the machine barely makes it off the launching rail before it crashes into the Potomac River. A month later, on December 8th, a second attempt also fails. Langley will never make a third. In a few days, he will receive word from Octave Chanute, his fellow inventor, that somebody has beaten him to it. A stunned Langley will assume it's one of his rivals, Augustus Herring, perhaps, or Lawrence Hargrave. But Chanute will inform Langley that actually, in the race to the skies, he has been beaten by a pair of bicycle mechanics, two brothers without a high school diploma between them, named Wilbur and Orville Wright. It's 1878 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 25 years before Samuel Langley's piloted aerodrome crashes into the Potomac River. Milton Wright, a Protestant bishop, arrives home one day with a toy helicopter. The toy is made of paper and cork with a rotor powered by a twisted rubber band. Milton bought the 50-cent toy as a gift for his sons, 11-year-old Wilbur and 6-year-old Orville. From a young age, Wilbur and Orville Wright started exhibiting an intense curiosity about the world around them. Although there are three other siblings, and Wilbur is four years older than Orville, these two brothers have an especially close bond. Milton and his wife Susan nurture the boys' inquisitive nature, encouraging them to read widely and take responsibility for their own education. On that afternoon in 1878, Orville and Wilbur play with the toy helicopter for hours. The experience will spark a passionate interest in aviation. But throughout the brothers' childhood and adolescence, that's all it will remain an interest. By the time he's 18, Wilbur, the more academically brilliant of the pair, intends to go to Yale to become a minister. And he would have done so had a freak sporting accident not changed the course of his life. It's the winter of 1885. The Wright family has relocated to Dayton, Ohio. Wilbur plays hockey on a frozen pond with some friends when he's struck in the face by a hockey stick. He suffers a broken jaw and endures months of terrible pain. But the worst injuries are psychological. He plunges into a deep depression and decides not to attend Yale. He withdraws and becomes a recluse. Wilbur's once bright future has been abruptly extinguished, and it will take nearly eight years to recover from his injuries. During this time, when not providing care for his dying mother, Wilbur reads voraciously. He consumes every book about aerodynamics he can get his hands on. He analyzes complex aeronautical data, working out precise equations that might enable humans to fly. By the time he emerges from his period of isolation, Wilbur's fascination with aviation has become an obsession. But there's still the matter of making a living. So in 1892, Wilbur and Orville, who also dropped out of high school, opens a bicycle shop in Dayton. There, the brothers design, manufacture, and sell bicycles, using the proceeds to fund their budding flight experiments all the while closely monitoring the latest developments in aeronautics. 
Their lives become consumed by their ambition. Of the two brothers, Orville is the more brilliant engineer, but Wilbur is the visionary genius and the driving force behind their work. But despite their abilities, the odds are stacked against the Wright brothers. They have no formal qualifications and are almost entirely self-taught. Try as they might, they cannot gain access to the exclusive community of aeronautical inventors, men like Dr. Samuel Langley. In 1899, Wilbur writes a letter to the Smithsonian, headed by Langley. Dear Sirs, I have some pet theories as to the proper construction of a flying machine. I wish to avail myself of all that is already known and then, if possible, help the future worker who will attain final success. The letter doesn't do much for Wilbur. Langley is busy developing his aerodrome. But later that year, on his own, Wilbur makes a significant discovery one that allows the Wright brothers to overtake Langley in the race to the skies. One day, while fiddling with a scrap of rubber in the workshop, Wilbur discovers the principle of wing warping, a system of pulleys that twist the edges of wings, mimicking the way birds keep balance in flight. It turns out to be a major breakthrough, and the Wright brothers make good use of the discovery as they assemble their earliest gliders. Learning from the mistakes of their contemporaries, like Otto Lilienthal, who crashed and died in 1896, the brothers realized that control is the fundamental issue. To stay aloft, the machines require built-in steering and an ability to adjust the wings and maintain equilibrium. The brothers also need a suitable place to test their gliders. They settle on the coast of North Carolina, where the dunes outside the town of Kitty Hawk will provide a consistent breeze and soft, sandy landings. Kitty Hawk is also remote. There, they will be able to carry out their experiments away from the prying eyes of the press. The Wright brothers spend the next three years traveling between Dayton, Ohio, and Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Slowly, methodically, they develop their gliders. They experiment with tilt, lift, and thrust. They adjust the curvature of the wings and design a movable rudder for steering. Eventually, they add a diesel engine, built by Charlie Taylor, the mechanic from their bicycle shop. By 1903, they have built the Wright Flyer, a meticulously designed masterpiece of engineering. But when the first test flight ends in calamity on December 14th, Orville and Wilbur must contend with the possibility they've gotten something wrong. With the weather worsening and rival aviators closing in on the prize, there isn't time for a radical rethink. Instead, everything comes down to the next test flight. It's December 17th, 1903 the day of the second test flight. Wilbur and Orville emerge from their tent to a bitterly cold winter's morning. A freezing headwind whips in from the northeast and stings the brothers' faces. They look ruefully at one another. Conditions are even worse than they were before, but they don't have much choice. It has to be today. They don't want someone else to be first. Once again, they enlist the help of some local Coast Guardsmen, as well as a 16-year-old local boy who happens to be walking down the beach that morning. Together, they dragged the right flyer into position at the foot of Kill Devil Hill. Wilbur went last time, so now it's Orville's turn. He climbs into the cockpit and checks his controls. Everything's in order. It's now or never. Wilbur pulls the propellers. The motor starts running. Orville stares directly into the icy wind and begins moving down the launching rail. The sand beneath him becomes a blur as the plane accelerates, the sound of rattling wood filling his ears, until suddenly... The plane lifts off the rail and the rattling disappears. It's only air between him and the ground now. For 15 feet, 30 feet, 50 feet, 
the plane travels 100 feet in total, airborne for 12 whole seconds, before coming to land under the control of its pilot. The onlookers cheer, and for the first time in history, a machine has taken off from flat ground and sustained controlled flight through the air. The 16-year-old boy will run straight into the nearby village, spreading news of the groundbreaking achievement. Wilbur and Orville Wright will become celebrities, but nobody, not even the Wright brothers themselves, could have predicted how radically their invention would transform human existence. From international travel to modern warfare to space exploration, the age of aviation changed the way we live, and it all began on that windswept beach in North Carolina on December 17, 1903. Next on History Daily, December 20th, 1860, South Carolina secedes from the Union and the United States of America is plunged into civil war. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bond. Sound design by Misha Stanton. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Joe Viner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. It's November 2nd, 1947. It's a typically golden morning on the southern coast of California. Excited crowds line Long Beach Harbor, ready to see a spectacle. Underneath a sprawling canvas tent, reporter James McNamara passes rows of clattering typewriters. McNamara enjoys the crackle of his fellow newshounds as they quarrel, flirt, crack wise, and gossip even faster than they type. Today, the main topic of conversation is Howard Hughes, the famous American businessman, investor, and daredevil aviator. Whether or not he's ruined, whether or not he's insane. McNamara and the rest of the reporters are here to cover the maiden taxi run of the world's largest and most expensive aircraft. The H-4 Hercules, as only Mr. Hughes calls it, is a gigantic flying boat designed to be a key part of the war effort. With its huge wooden belly, it can transport large numbers of war personnel and materials across the Atlantic Ocean, providing a tremendous logistical advantage. And just in time, one reporter jokes, seeing how the war's been over for two years. But the Hercules is a sight to behold. A majestic, eight-rotored beast gleaming in the sun and making every other boat in the bay seem minuscule by comparison. Due to wartime restrictions, the aircraft is built principally from plywood, and this has led some detractors to nickname it the Flying Lumberyard. But history will remember the aircraft by another name, a name despised by Howard Hughes, the Spruce Goose. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is November 2nd, the Spruce Goose. It's November 2nd, 1947 at Long Beach, California. 
On the harbor rim under the canopy, reporters are placing bets. This goose won't fly, one reporter says to McNamara. He'd have better chance of putting the Empire State Building into the air. The radio reporter lugs with him some heavy but portable recording equipment, including a turntable, a large storage battery, and cables. He and his engineer haul it toward where the giant aircraft is moored. McNamara is one of the lucky few reporters who've been allowed aboard the Spruce Goose this morning. And soon McNamara is seated inside the spacious flight deck. Speaking into his microphone, he describes to listeners how the Sky Giant is cruising along the northwest course of the Outer Harbor. This marvel is over 200 tons and has a wingspan greater than 320 feet, bigger than any football field in America. The tail alone is 80 feet tall. But the most astounding fact is the price tag. According to some reports, the Spruce Goose cost in excess of $23 million, equivalent to $211 million today. That extraordinary figure includes $18 million in government funds that the project received way back in 1942 for three of such boats. The Spruce Goose has garnered a reputation as a useless money pit and Howard Hughes a shameless war profiteer. In fact, just two months earlier, Hughes was called before the United States Congress. They asked him to explain how he'd only managed to produce two prototypes of a now unnecessary aircraft. Howard Hughes came out fighting. He told the committee members, I've put the sweat of my life into this thing. I have my reputation rolled up in it, and I've stated several times that if it's a failure, I'll probably leave the country, never come back, and I mean it. Now Howard sits behind the controls of his controversial airship. Today was billed as a simple high-speed taxi demonstration, but Howard plans to give his onlookers something more sensational than that. After all, this is a man who knows a thing or two about showmanship. As well as being a highly successful entrepreneur and inventor, he tried his hand at filmmaking and was, as far as he's concerned, very good, even if the critics didn't always agree. As the director and producer of the 1930 film Hell's Angels, Hughes staged spectacular aerial dogfighting scenes, even piloting planes above the action himself and coordinating maneuvers through radio direction. Later, when he directed The Outlaw, starring Jane Russell, he employed his engineering skills to design a new cantilevered underwire bra, one to emphasize Russell's already impressive bust. The result was too uncomfortable for Miss Russell to wear, but that didn't faze Howard Hughes. He knows what the country wants to see. And today, on November 2nd, 1947, they want to get a glimpse of a great American hero. Howard certainly looks the part. He isn't dressed like a movie star. With his brown leather jacket, brown trousers, and matching fedora, he looks like the daring aviator a movie star might play on the big screen. But now, inside the hot, king-size cockpit, he's removed his hat and jacket. He's pushing at the throttle and picking up speed. McNamara, holding a microphone to his lips, looks out the side window. He reports that they're 30 feet above the ocean, even though they haven't taken off. But to Howard, who sits in the cockpit, the reporter might as well be a buzzing fly. Howard is partly deaf, and so he likely wouldn't be able to hear him, even without the roaring of the engines. It's a good thing, too, as McNamara is now reminding his listeners that Mr. Hughes' war contracts are still under investigation. Howard wants to play the part of the great American hero, but there are those in the press who describe Howard Hughes as anything but heroic. They point to the fact that he didn't even serve in World War II, and yet made huge profits as a weapons manufacturer. He's a silver spoon kid, his detractors say, who inherited his fortune. 
He's not some great inventor. He's a spoiled hobbyist, and he's been indulging his own preoccupations at America's expense. But Howard, the idiosyncratic billionaire, has never slowed down in the face of criticism. Inside the cockpit of the Spruce Goose, he presses down on the throttle, determined to show a skeptical world that, in the end, only a fool bets against Howard Hughes. It's November 2nd, 1947. As Howard Hughes presses the throttle of the Spruce Goose, he knows that his entire reputation as an air manufacturer is at stake. If this thing fails to fly this morning, he may have to make good on his promise and leave the country in disgrace. But the story of the Spruce Goose didn't begin with Howard. It was actually the brainchild of Henry Kaiser, a wealthy American boat builder renowned for his line of Liberty cargo ships. Throughout World War II, Kaiser's Liberty ships were mass-produced on an unprecedented scale, providing a vital resource for Allied forces. They transported everything from tanks to troops to wherever they most needed to be. But down in the depths of the North Atlantic, there lurked a problem. German U-boats were torpedoing Allied transport ships as they attempted to cross the sea. It became impossible to get any heavy payload through without risking destruction. The solution was obvious. Giant flying boats capable of taking off and landing on water and built to carry huge loads across long distances far above enemy subs. And Kaiser knew about boats. But to get aloft, he needed the help of another industrialist with more aeronautical experience. Howard Hughes had already stepped up to aid in the war effort. He wasn't a soldier. His deafness precluded him from serving his country in that way. But as an inventor and military supplier, he could still pitch in. In 1941, Howard devised a method to feed ammunition into fighter plane guns with greater efficiency. And as a result, he'd made millions through war contracts, building an even greater fortune than the one he'd inherited from his father. Howard Hughes Sr. had been the founder of the Hughes Tool Company and made his mark on the world in the drilling industry. And it was evident from an early age that Howard Jr. was going to be a chip off the old block. At age 11, with his dad's help, Howard, a native Texan, had built Houston's first-ever wireless radio transmitter. At age 12, he had his picture taken for the papers as the first boy in Houston to have built himself a motorized bicycle. He was taking flying lessons at 14, and no one who knew Howard at that age had any doubt that something big was going to come from him. But as a teenager, Howard suffered a double blow. Both of his parents died suddenly, his mother from an ectopic pregnancy, his father from a heart attack. It was an emotional loss that cast a shadow over the rest of his life. In his father's will, Howard inherited most of the family fortune. But he wasn't merely an heir. He distinguished himself as a highly successful businessman in his own right, setting up the Hughes Aircraft Company. He was so successful that in 1942, shipbuilder Henry Kaiser convinced him to build a prototype for a flying boat that could help win the war. The aircraft was originally called the HK-1, H for Hughes, K for Kaiser. It was to carry 750 troops, despite being made of birchwood rather than metal. However, the development of the craft dragged on far beyond its initial deadline, and the relationship between the two industrialists grew strained. Frustrated by the excruciating slowness of Howard's perfectionism, Kaiser dropped out of the project. Hughes dropped the K from the name. Now the aircraft was just the H-4. War raged on while Howard kept perfecting his new obsession. When the war ended, 
the aircraft still wasn't finished. The media dubbed the overdue aircraft the Spruce Goose, but in Washington, it was seen as a waste of time, money, and resources. And for one Republican senator, Ralph Brewster, it became the focus of a political attack. Senator Brewster launched an inquiry into Hughes' supposed misappropriation of funds. To have taken so much money from the war budget, Brewster argued, during a moment of national crisis, and to still not have delivered anything long after that crisis had been reverted, was surely profiteering. So Hughes went to Washington to defend himself. He told Congress that Senator Brewster's story, as related here yesterday, is a pack of lies and I can tear it apart. It was in this testimony that he swore before the Senate that if he couldn't get his Hercules H-4 into the air, then he'd leave the country in disgrace. And so, two months later, on the shore of Long Beach Harbor, Howard has everything riding on this demonstration. He accelerates his mighty aircraft and prepares for takeoff. He's ready to show Senator Brewster and everyone else that nobody underestimates Howard Hughes. It's November 2nd, 1947, on the South Californian coast. On board the Spruce Goose, radio reporter James McNamara makes his way to the cockpit. He passes by mechanics, engineers, and the co-pilot for an exclusive interview with Howard Hughes himself. He holds the microphone close to Howard's lips so his answers can be heard over the roar of the machine. The craft has already completed its first run on the water, and McNamara asks what speed they attain. 90 miles per hour, he's told. Howard explains that he's about to do another run for the photographers, but this one will be a little different. McNamara straps in, but keeps commentating as he watches the airspeed indicator. We're at 45, he tells his listeners. 50, 55, 60, full throttle, 70, 75, then at 80 miles per hour over an extremely choppy sea. The spruce goose takes flight. Howard and the crew on board cheer victoriously, as do the onlookers watching from the harbor wall. Howard, did you expect that? asks an astounded McNamara once the goose returns to the water. Certainly, replies Howard in a cool tone. I like to make surprises. The goose was airborne for one minute and reached 70 feet off the water. It flew 135 miles per hour for roughly a mile. It was the only time that the spruce goose ever took to the skies. However, that demonstration was all that was needed to prove Howard's detractors wrong, and in the public eye, he'd vindicated his use of government funds. The H-4 Hercules, the Spruce Goose, is now the centerpiece attraction at the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum in Oregon. It was originally commissioned to save Allied ships from German torpedoes, but because it arrived long after the U-boat menace had subsided, it never fulfilled its intended purpose. It could be argued, in fact, that the only thing the Spruce Goose ever really saved was Howard Hughes' reputation. Tomorrow on History Daily, November 3rd, in the midst of the space race, a stray Russian mutt named Laika rides a rocket into history. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bond. Sound design by Derek Barrett. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by James Benmore. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser.